Morning, everybody. Kind of subdued. It was a short night last night, wasn't it? <clears throat> In the first hour, I was looking at somebody over here, and I'm trying to make eye contact, and he's literally looking through me. I'm like, and I came to find out he was in a coma. <laughs> Betty got home from work last night about 10 or 11 and uh, still had to give me a haircut. And I said, you might as well just stay up. I mean, it's almost morning already. Some of you are still stuck about back at, why did he need a haircut? Fifty-seven degrees today. Amen. God is good. If you're an explorer, devotional. I was reading this morning Psalm 147, and it says how God makes the snow and the hail, and then it says, I think it's verse 18. It says, and then at His command, it all melts. And I'm like, yes. You could just skip the commands to snow in the first place, and I'd be fine with that. Not a winter guy. Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Luke. We're in chapter 18 today. Join me in prayer before we begin. God of heaven and earth, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the one whose name is never mentioned in the newspapers, but who's always behind the reports, the one who's overlooked at many festivities, and yet who is always behind them. one who is seen as, by some as uh, simply the latest rin, uh, version of a, a god or gods. And yet we know you as the one who has always been, who always was, the everlasting God, the most high. The one who is not simply over us, but those of us in Christ is in us. The one who's not simply standing outside of us, holy and perfect as you are, and condemning us, but who has in Christ come to us and offered us hope. Wow, that's good news. We love you, we worship you, we give you the praise that is due your name this morning, and pray against the enemy that he'd have no impact on us, no impact on our, uh, the words I speak or the words that are heard, that the message uh, itself of hope in Christ and a relationship with you because of him might bring us encouragement, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so if you would have been a citizen of the British Empire back in 1939, 1940, you have been very, very worried, and you have had cause to worry. 
1939, Germany attacked Poland from the west and Russia attacked Poland from the east. And because France and Britain had a defense pact with Poland, they declared war on Germany within days. Didn't really help much, though. Russia and Germany had their way with Europe. Russia ate up the Baltic states and Finland. Germany invaded Norway and uh, Denmark. And that rolled through the Netherlands and Belgium and France. And now Britain's all alone against these two giants, Russia and Germany. And things looked so bleak that American military commanders didn't want to send any arms to Britain because they assumed that Germany would defeat them and that those arms would end up in the hands of Germany. The United States decided at the end of 1940, though, to begin to send some material to Great Britain uh, on a Lend-Lease program because Britain had no money. They were still trying to pay off World War II costs, uh, sorry, World War I costs. So that was a good news for Britain. And then the major thing, though, that happened was in June of 1941. Hitler had always planned to uh, betray Russia, but he had a treaty with them early on just so he could keep them off his back until he was ready to take them on. And that would have been in June 1941. He invaded Russia. And overnight, Britain went from facing a two-pronged force of Germany Britain, uh, Germany and Russia to now having Russia as an ally. Everything changed literally in a matter of days. And Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Britain, went to his old school, Harrow School, which had been around for 400 years, and he gave a speech that has become famous down through the ages. On October 20, uh, 29, 1941, this is what he said. Surely from this period of 10 months, and he had spoken at the school 10 months earlier, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. Never in nothing, great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood all alone a year ago, and to many countries it seemed that our account was closed we were finished. And of course they weren't. And later that year, the United States joined the fight. And four years later, Germany lay in rubble. The passage we're going to read this morning, Jesus tells us who follow Jesus, gives us the same message. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. He's talking about prayer. Now Jesus was... Uh, certainly the one to give us counsel and prayer. We read in Scripture about him going, leaving his disciples, going up into the mountain and spending all night in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but I have tried to spend those kind of hours in prayer, and it ain't easy. Tend to fall asleep, tend to lose your train of thought. And yet here's this, the Son of God. You would think the Son of God, okay, he and God are really tight, the Father is so... Why does he really need that relationship? And yet this was, this so marked his life that the only thing his disciples ever asked him to teach them how to do was how to pray. And so I think 
he wisely counsels us to never give up in prayer because he knows something about the work and power of prayer even in his own life. Francis Chan, of course, has traveled much uh, throughout the world, and he was asked one time by an American Christian, in all your travels and meeting with Christians in other parts of the world, do you see a difference <clears throat> excuse me, between Christians and their praying habits and lives in other parts of the world versus Christians in America? And he said, absolutely. And they say, asked, well, why do you think that is? And he said this, because we have other options. So, for example, if your child is dying and there's no pharmacy nearby and no doctor nearby and the closest clinic is three days' walk away, you pray. And so if you haven't had food for two days and there's no grocery store nearby and you'd have no money to buy even if there was one, you pray. And if you need money and you don't have a bank nearby, and even if you did, they wouldn't loan you any money, and you don't have a credit card to sinfully put money on that you're going to pay three years from now, you pray. And Jesus has a concern for the followers of him that we wrestle with the question, do we need God? And we wrestle with the question in response, does he answer us when we pray? God wants to know from us, do you need me? And we want to know from God, do you answer? Let's look at these verses, story that Jesus told. And then try to do some thinking, God's thoughts after him. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. One day... Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. And a widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. And then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Now, I want you to call to mind right now something that you once prayed for but no longer do. And not because that prayer was answered, but because you gave up. Think about something. It might have been that you stopped praying for it weeks ago, months ago, or years ago. When I was praying through this message, the thing that God laid on my heart was something that I gave up praying uh, probably about 25 years ago. I'd prayed for, for 17 years, and then I gave up. So something that you, have, you gave up praying for. You have it? All right. Right there in your seat, right where you're sitting, I want you to pray for it again by yourself, right? I'll give you a minute. Just go to the God and pray for it again.
Holly, you know, we have, uh, tend to have short-term attention spans. We tend to give up easily. We tend to become discouraged when you don't work like our microwave does or our ATM does. We tend to wonder if you have even been listening. Well, we've presented these requests to you all over again because our Savior has urged us to pray and never give up. Amen. So there's a call to prayer in these words of Jesus. Pray, never give up. Pray, never give up. Never, 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 never give up. Why do we turn to the Lord in prayer? So the story that Jesus tells here is about a judge and a woman. About a man who has the power and can meet her need. Uh, Steve, you want to come on up here. And so Jesus is comparing this woman and man to us and uh, God because our God can also meet our needs. He is all-powerful. There's nothing, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 32, 17, there's nothing that's too hard for you to do, God. And when Jesus was answering uh, his disciples' concerns about when Jesus had said it's, it's hard for even uh, the rich man to enter, enter into heaven, they're like, well, we always thought that riches meant that they were blessed and loved by God. If, if a rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus said, nothing is blank for God. Do you remember what he answered? Nothing is what? Impossible for God. Now, this is my friend Steve Hughes. I don't know if you know him or not. He comes to early service. Say hi, Steve. So Steve, was, uh, Steve has some ear problems. He, he's had uh, four surgeries on his left ear. He has no eardrum in that ear. Uh, he has no bones in the ear anymore. And he was at his doctor a couple months ago and had a conversation with him. And how did that go? Well, through all the surgeries, uh, that was in the 90s. I've had constant seepage in my ear uh, for all these years. It's, it still seeps today, uh, but every once in a while it gets infected, so I have to go to a specialist that will go in and, and clean it out. And so I went down to the specialist. He's an ENT in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. And so he cleans it out, and he looks in there. He says, I've got really bad news. He says, you have a cholestoma, which is basically a cyst in your middle ear, and we need to operate. He says, uh, I was prodding a little bit, and I couldn't figure out how big it is, so you'll have to go get a uh, CAT scan. Uh, if it's a big one, you'll have a three-hour surgery, but if it's a small one, it'll just be a one-hour surgery. So you go, and you get the CAT scan. They do the testing. They send the report back to your doctor. So you come back in for the follow-up for him to tell you what, what you're going to have to do, how long the surgery will be, and schedule it. So what happened then? Right. I went back in, and he was going to schedule the surgery that day. And so he looks at the CAT scan, and he spends uh, some time on it. And then he says, come on, let's go in. We'll, we'll uh, take a look at, at your ear to make sure everything uh, is going on. And so he, he puts the, the big machine up to my ear, and he's looking in there for probably five minutes. And all of a sudden, he pulls the thing back, and he says, it's gone. He says, there, you don't need surgery. It's gone. And so uh, nothing ever came out of my ear 
So it was definitely a healing from, from God. So. And, and the doctor actually used the M word, didn't he? Oh, yes, he did say. I, I said, it's a miracle. He says, yes, it is. He says, you're, you're one of the, the, the fortunate few. So. Let's give God a praise offering. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> Nothing he can't do. That's a reminder for you and the thing you've given up, Frank. Nothing he can't. That's the starting point, right? We don't serve a limited God. I remember back uh, when I was in my 20s, uh, a rabbi wrote a book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And his conclusion was that God is not powerful enough to stop bad things from happening to good people. God's got limits on him. Can you imagine living in a world like that where your God is this big instead of this big? God can do anything and we are after all needy people now back to the judge this judge he it, jesus described him this way he doesn't fear god and he doesn't care about people so he's an atheist or an agnostic so he's got no moral compass and he's not even sympathetic he's, he's got no he's not interested in people he could give he could care less what's happening to this woman we don't know what her problem was. We know that the Pharisees were criticized by Jesus <clears throat> for devouring women's ha- widows' houses. So after their husbands were gone, they would exploit them sometimes and, and work it so that they could get uh, ownership of them. We don't know what was going on, but she was being taken advantage of. She was being exploited by someone. Judge didn't care. Wasn't any his business, except that he couldn't put up with this woman very long and so he finally he gave her what she wanted so that she would just be quiet kind of like some of you do as parents with your kids sometimes just got to put an end to it now the mistake that we sometimes make in the stories that jesus tells is that we think when jesus tells a story that compares a person to god we think oh that's that's how god is It's not how God is. God cares about people. He has a moral center. He is, after all, the center of morality. He is holy. But Jesus' point is even a bad person can give justice in the end. How much more will God your Father do? Now, the problem is Jesus says something that we're not totally sure we buy into when you get down to verses six and seven he says learn a lesson from the unjust judge even he rendered a just decision in the end so don't you think in other words your father is far better than this judge was he's far different his character is totally different so don't you think god will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night Will he keep putting them off? Rhetorical question. Answer is no. I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. And yet probably every one of us prayed about something that we gave up praying about because God wasn't responding to us either quickly or perhaps in many of our cases. We'd given him ample time. We'd given him years to answer and he hadn't. So how does God work when it comes to timing? If God is ready, willing, and able to answer our praying, why doesn't he, at least in a reasonable amount of time? 
I think there's another call in this text beyond the call to prayer. It surfaces in verse 8. A call to faith. And I don't think he's talking about converts there. Let me try to unpack this. Jesus says, if you're reading down through this story and, and Jesus is calling us to pray and never give up, pray and never give up, pray and never give up, verse 8 then seems to be like a statement from out of left field. I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly, but, so this is connected, but when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Now, if he's talking about converts, simply followers of Jesus, that, doesn't, that just doesn't fit. It doesn't seem to make any sense to this discussion about you should pray, 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 and now, but how many Christians are there going to be on planet Earth when he comes back? I think he's talking about something different than that. Now, if, if I were to ask you, how many of you think that there must be some mysterious um, secret way, formula, recipe, method, whatever you want to call it, that um, if you just did this, or if you just didn't do this, you could be assured that God's always going to answer your prayer. I wonder how many of you, deep down inside, we really think that there is something like that. Fred Price wrote a book in 2011 by the title, Answered Prayer Guaranteed. Man, a book like that will just fly off the shelves. There are lots of them out there, by the way, or all kinds of podcasts out there that tell you how to pray and get results. How to pray and get results. Some people think that the secret to having uh, all your prayers answered is fasting. Now, I'm a, a big fan of fasting. I'm far more, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a far better fan than I am a practitioner. I really like the idea of fasting. I think you should do it. You should do more of it. I, I, uh, a number of years back, I, I used to fast once a week. And uh, that was just hideous. I mean, it was just ugly. And the other thing that happened, um, I love John Piper's book, Hunger for God, a book on fasting called Hunger for God. And the, the introduction or the very beginning line of the first chapter, I forget which it is, says, beware of books on fasting. And I discovered he's right because one of the foundational things that can happen with fasting is pride, spiritual pride. I'm, I'm really something. Some people think that if I just fast or if I fast just right, that God, it's, it's like God finally... Okay, uncle, we twist his arm hard enough and he finally gives in. And if I, if I fast, my, my wife will come back to me and things will be right in our marriage. Now, it's certainly true that sometimes fasting produces amazing results. But even people who are serious fasters will tell you that's not always the case. I had a friend once who used to tell me, I'm really going to pray hard on this. Or I've really been praying hard on this. There were certain things that he prayed about and other things that he prayed hard about. And I was never quite sure what that meant. If it meant he prayed a lot 
uh, more than normal or if he prayed with more intensity. I just knew for him he was praying hard on that. This, this was really important to him. These things kind of so-so, but this was really important. He's going to pray hard. Maybe if I pray hard, I'll land that big contract I'm trying to win. One of the other things that I've n- noticed, and this seems like this, um, this surfaces in moments of intense sorrow. If I would have just been a better person or if I would have just done better things, maybe God would answer my prayer. The woman who says to me, if I would have just been a better Christian, maybe God would bless me with a child. And my response is, have you seen some of the awful parents God gives children to? Are you kidding me? That your goodness is going to earn you a child and somebody's badness is going to keep God from giving them a child? here's, Here's my concern. I think most of us would say we understand that God gives salvation free of charge. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, right? And this not of ourselves, it's a, it's a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone have something to boast about. That we believe that our justification, our being declared innocent before God of our sins, is done solely on the basis of God's gift, grace. But somehow when we cross the bridge of salvation and we move into sanctification, that outworking, that outliving of God's salvation in our life, now sometimes we become hmm, mercenary. That we think if, if I do just the right thing for God, he'll do just the right thing for me. I wonder how many of us would say, that's been true of my life, something I really, really wanted badly. I figured that if I put this into it, God will give it back to me. Brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that Jesus paid for some of it, it's that he paid for all of it. And not just at the moment of your salvation, but at the, for all of your life. We live by grace through faith at conversion, and we live by grace through faith Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, every week after that until we're taken home to glory. Now that, in some cases, people find very disappointing because they want to know if I just do the right thing. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are things in Scripture that, that God says, if we do this, that's a that's an obstacle to answer prayer. David says in Psalm 68, uh, 66, 18, if I had regarded or if I cherished, if I would held on to sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. In other words, if I am willfully clinging to a sin habit and I don't want to hear anything from God about repentance and I, want to, and I want to be broken about it, God's not going to hear that prayer. Why? Because there's a major obstacle between him and I. And you say, well, that means he's never going to hear my prayers because I... I sinned this week. All right. I want you to just, um, for a minute, 
take a, a right turn and look at the person to your right. Just look at them. You can't see them. They're looking at the other person. Now to the left. All right, everybody you just looked at is a sinner. Everybody you just looked at. So if, if by virtue of the fact that we still do sometimes sin, if that was the obstacle to answer prayer, none of us would ever get any of our prayers answered. By grace. And we shouldn't think as we hear this story where this woman badgers this man almost to death that God is like that and if we just badger him often enough, long enough and with enough tears or fervency that he'll do what we want. God is not a reluctant father. What does Jesus say? If you human fathers know how to give good gifts to your kids, what about God? You're sinful fathers and you want to give good gifts to your kids. God wants to give good gifts to you. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Now, I'm a little ticked off at the NLT because when they translated this, they omitted a word that's in the Greek text. If you have a more literal translation, it's included in there. They omitted the word graciously. It should say, uh, but gave him up for us all, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also graciously give us everything else. In other words, by virtue of God's grace, he's going to give everything else that we need and should have. Everything else that we need and should have. And so Jesus promises in this text that God will answer our prayers with justice. God will answer our prayers and what is needed with justice. The problem is, God's timeline seems to differ from from ours. It seems as if in the text that Jesus is talking about, when we pray, God's going to answer. Boom. He's not going to delay. He's not going to put us off. He's going to answer speedily, quickly. We're like, are you kidding me? After 20 years? That's quick. 2 Peter 3, verse 8, And with the Lord... A thousand years is as what? A day. And a day is as a thousand years. Now, we have the misfortune of, being, uh, of looking at moments through the lens of a roughly 80-year lifespan. And God looks through the lens of a no-time lifespan. He always was and he always is. So our 80 years here on earth is simply a flash in the pan. And so we have, to, we have to appreciate God's vantage point when it comes to time. And so when the martyrs are in Revelation chapter 6, they're standing before God, and they were killed because they followed Jesus, and they're now in heaven, and they stand before God and say, how long until you avenge us? And if 
if we could understand God's justice coming in the way that we read those words in Luke 18, we would think that, okay, this, this person was killed wrongly. Now, the person that killed them, God should judge them instantly. And yet here they are in heaven. That's clearly not happened. And not only that, but God says you need to wait a little bit longer until the full number of martyrs have been killed and they join your company. And I wonder how many times we, we've concluded that God is not listening. God must be out to lunch. God's on vacation when we've been praying and praying and praying. And God's trying to say, not yet, not yet, not yet. And while we're concluding that God is ignoring us, not listening, not caring, God's saying, oh, but I do care. I am listening, but I know something better than you. No. Part of the problem when it comes to prayer is I think we have missed the whole point of prayer. We've missed, we've gotten part of it that we are needy people and God is a need meter, but we've missed part of what God is after in prayer. We simply think about what we're after in prayer. Does ever stop to think about what's God after in prayer? Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, verse 7 says this about Jesus. <clears throat> While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings. And we know that. We already talked about that with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. Now just stop right there for a second. So Jesus is praying to the Father who can rescue, he has the ability, he has the power to rescue Jesus from death. Did he? Yes or no, did he? No. Wow. And in the garden, Jesus said, plan B, maybe? Could we go with plan B, God? I'm not sure I'm up to this crucifixion stuff. He cried out to the one who could save him from death. God said, no. Was he heard? Read on. And God heard his prayers. And you could write in there, and God heard his prayers even though he didn't say yes to them. And God heard his prayers. Why? Because of Jesus' deep reverence for God. It'd be fun to have a whole conversation about how can the Son of God be reduced to be spoken of having a deep reverence for his Father. But that's another time discussion. But his prayers were heard because of his deep reverence for God. I wonder how many of us who, say, who pray, who have a prayer life, manifest the reverence for God in the prayer life or do we simply go as as if we're going to the grocery store and picking up a few things we need what God seeks in prayer is fellowship what God listen what God seeks in prayer is fellowship what God seeks in prayer with his people is fellowship say that with me what God seeks in prayer is fellowship Leith Anderson, I, to me, the best definition of prayer. But prayer is communion 
with God. It's in prayer that we experience fellowship with God. We get into the word and we begin fellowship with God. We get with a body of believers, we begin with fellowship with God. We get, we're going to sit around the tables after the service and eat a meal uh, with other believers. We begin fellowship with God, but, but ultimate fellowship with God comes in prayer. Augustine says it this way, true whole prayer is nothing but love. And what he means is that your love as a follower of Jesus Christ and my love as a follower of Jesus Christ for the God who saved us is manifested in prayer. And yet I wonder how many times God's convinced of that based on how we pray. Some of you have heard me talk about this book before. Daniel Henderson's Transforming Prayer, How Everything Changes When You Seek God's Face. I got a hold of this book about four years ago when I preached on prayer and has been deeply impactful in my life. And he talks about the contrast between worship-based praying and request-based praying. And how would you describe the content of your praying? Is it primarily request-based, primarily worship-based. Do you go to God for God or do you just go to God for you? It's interesting, if you go back to the Lord's Prayer and again where his disciples, Jesus' disciples are asking him, teach us how to pray, and this was Jesus' answer. When you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You notice how it doesn't start out. It doesn't start out, God, give me the job, give me the girl, give me the guy, give me the, give me the world, give me, give me the money, give me, give me, give me. It doesn't start out that way. It gets to, to that at the end. Give us this day our daily bread. But it starts out talking about who God is, what he's like, what he does, what his agenda is, and where his agenda is, is being worked out. That's where it starts. Worship-based praying or request-based praying. And we find that as prayer becomes more and more about God, he begins to change our hearts. What we ask for begins to change. What we value begins to change. What we worry about begins to change. Our priorities begin to change. Some of you have experienced that. And truth be told, some of us just want to wash our hands of prayer because we don't know anything about that. All we know is that we put the money in and we didn't get the candy bar back. And we can't figure that out. And yet God's in his heaven wondering when we're going to be with him. When are you going to come to me? You're so busy. You're so running here and there. You're so preoccupied with this. You want to have fun with that? Just slow down and stop and meet with me. I want to be with you. I love you. Listen, I bought you. I bought you with the blood of my son. I want to be with you. I bought you because you're dear to me. I bought you because I love you. I bought you because I set my affections upon you. I bought you because you're special to me and I want to be with you. How many of us would have much of a marriage if we weren't with our spouse and we weren't talking with them and we weren't telling them how wonderful they are and how much we love them and how much they do for us and how thankful we are. Marriage would just... 
yet how many of us endure that kind of Christianity because we don't have the fellowship. Jesus, when he says, and when the Son of Man returns to planet Earth, how many will have faith? What he's talking about is the kind of people who have been born again by the Lord Jesus Christ who are in fellowship with God. Pray and never give up. Why? This is who you come to. Now, I would, I would love to, to see us all become, become, because this is a becoming thing. It's not an overnight thing. Becoming worship-based prayers. I wonder how many of you this morning before you came to church got alone someplace with God and worshiped him before you got to church. Or did you think, ah, that's what I do Sunday once a week and that's it. Were you alone with the Lord this morning? Did he, ha- did he get to meet with you this morning? Or were you too busy getting ready for church? Tomorrow morning when you get up for work, will you have time to meet with the Lord? Or you simply got to get to work? Or you got to catch the bus and get to school? Do you have time for the Lord who bought you to meet with him and tell him how wonderful he is? So well, I don't even know how to talk that kind of language. You, you tell God how wonderful he is by learning how wonderful he is. Do you understand that he's holy and the implications of that? You say, I know that God loves me. And basically because he bought me, so that's wonderful. But do you, do you, is your panorama of God like this or like this? And I want to give you a tool to help you. So on Keystone Church's Facebook page, I've put a sampler of some of God's attributes, his characteristics, what he's like. God is merciful, God is gracious, God is holy, God is loving, and then some Bible texts there. And so you can go on there and pick a couple up. And so tomorrow morning you can have some, some fuel, some meat for your worship-based praying a few minutes. I'm gonna, tomorrow I'm going to have the administrator send out to everybody that's on our, um, our email list, send out a full two-page fleshing out of, of God's characteristics, the ones that that are his exclusively and the ones that we share in some small way with him as well as all kinds of scriptures uh, that you can use to pray back uh, to God. I want to read, as we close here, I want to read a little story that Tim Keller shares in his book uh, simply called Prayer, Experiencing All and Intimacy with God. He says, years ago I was preaching on the Lord's Prayer and commented rather offhandedly that since adoration comes before asking uh, for our daily bread, we need to spend time thanking and praising God for who he is before we go to our prayer list of needs. One woman in my congregation took this to heart and a couple of weeks later related what a difference the advice had made. Before, she said, I would uh, run right to my prayer list and the more I went through all the problems and needs, the more anxious and burdened I would get. Now that I've started spending time thinking about how good and how wise he is and how many prayers he's answered of mine in the past, when I get to my own needs, now I find I can put them in his hands and I feel the burden coming off me rather than on me. And Keller says, I I never forgot her testimony because she had taken a principle I barely understood myself and had appropriated it into her life. We're going to close today this way. If you're able physically, uh, I'd like you to kneel at your seat and we're going to just 
worship the Lord for just a couple of minutes, and then we'll wrap up and our worship team will be back up here. So if you're able, um, get down and kneel. Kneeling is a, a posture of reverence toward one who is much greater. And Lord, you are much greater. We can't see you. We can't hear you in the normal human sense this morning. We can't smell you. We can't taste you. We can't touch you. All the things that convey reality to us are missing. And yet you are glorious. Your amazing deeds have been told from generation to generation. We heard Steve's story this morning. There are others here who have been healed of amazing things. This week, Art Nodecker flatlined, and yet he was here to worship in the early service. There have been times when we have cried out to you for something that was precious to us that we wanted so much. And then you gave it to us. And truth be told, inside of a year or so, we forgot that that thing that we continued to enjoy, that relationship, that person, was your gracious response to our prayers and pleas. We confess we're a forgetful people, Lord. We're grateful for people's stories like Steve that remind us just how good you are and generous. We're grateful that when we get alone with you, your Holy Spirit reminds us all that you've done. And when we tend to focus on the bad things, the prayers that you haven't answered, we wonder if you care and if you love us. All we have to do is look back at the cross and remind it all over again that you withheld nothing from us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a Redeemer who's not only paid the price for us, but who now lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, giving us supernatural power to do things we can't do. And that through him we have an inheritance that will not rust, mold, wear out, but will one day be fully fulfilled when we stand before you face to face. We love you, Lord. We're grateful that you did not treat us as our sins deserve. And I pray, Father, that you would make me a a more worshipful son, a, a, a more praising son, a more thankful son, that instead of having such a good memory about all the things I feel like you've shortchanged me on, that my best memory would be about all that you have done for me. And we pray this in Jesus' name.